As we come to the Word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we come humbly asking that you would please open our minds, illumine your Word, that we may know what it says to us this morning. May you help us to see our Savior in bright contrast to ourselves, and may we love Him with a deeper affection than before. It's in His mighty name we pray, amen. Many of you, no doubt, are familiar with the hymn, More Love to Thee, O Christ, written by a woman named Elizabeth Prentice. She was just an average Christian woman in the 19th century, and yet she wrote her experiences down, her daily life as a Christian wife and mother in the book Stepping Heavenward, a book I'd recommend to you. She dealt with many hardships in her life. Her life was not easy, which really is a definition for most lives on this fallen world, right? But she was, had a health condition which left her very physically weak and almost in constant pain. She also lost some of her children and therefore was understandably heartbroken. She struggled in the midst of losing those children to find hope and joy. During this time, she wrote in her diary, she said, empty hands, a worn out, exhausted body, and innumerable sufferings, or longing, sorry, innumerable longings to flee from a world that has so many experiences. We can relate to those longings, can't we? The worn out body and the longings to flee this world with so much suffering. But in this time, as she wrestled with this in her faith, she directed her thoughts to Scripture, meditating on what God had done for her. And it changed how she thought about her suffering and how she thought about her Lord. And though, and through this meditation on the Word, she realized that her greatest need was not necessarily deliverance from the physical suffering, but her greatest need was to love Christ more, no matter the circumstances. She wrote this, to love Christ more is the deepest need, the constant cry of my soul. Out in the woods and on my bed and out driving, when I am happy and busy and when I am sad and idle, the whisper keeps going up for more love, more love, more love. This is really the cry of every Christian's heart, that we would want to see more love go to Christ, that we're not satisfied with the level of our affection for Jesus at any one point. We want more love to go to Him. We want to be greater, ex more expressive of our love for Him. And yet, I'm sure you can relate that it's, often disappointing. We want more love to go to Christ and yet it doesn't happen. We feel like we fall so short. Our affection's not as all-consuming as it should be. We feel like our, uh, we go to praise Him and, and it falls so weakly, so limp. And so we need help loving our Savior. We need help offering more love to Jesus. And so I pray that our passage this morning will help to rekindle our love for Jesus, 
to give more love to him than we have and how we go about doing that. And so our passage this morning is found in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. If you're not there already, I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's word. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one in the pew rack directly in front of you. In Luke uh, 7, during this chapter, Luke has been showing Jesus ministering to some of the least likely people. You'd expect him to be ministering to the people that are in the core of Jewish society, but he's not doing that. First, in the, the opening narrative of chapter 7, he ministers to the servant of a Gentile military officer. Then he turns and he raises a poor widow's only son back to life. And now in the passage before us, he continues this trend as he ministers to a social outcast. And so, follow along as I read Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36 and going to the end of the chapter. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with, your t with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This passage is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Gospels. In addition to that, it's been called a literary gem because of the wonderful way that it's been written. But it's a story that illustrates 
the power of Jesus to forgive sins. It contrasts a woman of low social standing and a man of high social standing. And it shows the need for faith in order to receive salvation. But I think the takeaway from this as we see this woman in this account is to show how deep this woman's love is for Jesus. And so this morning, as we see this interplay between Jesus and this woman and this Pharisee, we're going to see a powerful example for us to follow of one who loved Jesus deeply. See what it looks like to love Jesus with all our hearts. Specifically, we're going to see three aspects of this woman's example. And so the first aspect of her example is that her repentance drove her to honor Christ boldly. Her repentance drove her to honor Christ boldly. And we see this in verses 36 through 39. Look at where the, the account picks up in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. It opens with a really remarkable set of circumstances. A Pharisee has invited Jesus into his home to eat with him. This is remarkable simply because in the verses just prior, Jesus had condemned the Pharisees because they had accused Jesus. They were opposed to Jesus' ministry. They said, verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They're opposed to Jesus. They don't want anything to do with this guy who's, who's, who's associating with the outcasts, and yet here is one who brings Jesus in. And so it prompts us to ask the question, why? Why would this Pharisee want to bring Jesus into his home? And I think that as we read through the passage, we realize that he's, he wants to test Jesus. He's heard that this man is a prophet. The people are saying everywhere, this is a great prophet, he's come. Jesus himself said that he was the spirit-anointed Messiah as Isaiah had prophesied. And so this Pharisee and potentially his other friends want to get an up-close look at this guy. Okay, is he really a prophet? Let's, let's get him in, in here closer and let's get a close eye on him, kind of test him, see what, what happens. Amazingly, Jesus accepts the invitation. He goes and attends this banquet at the Pharisee's house. Now we learn later that the Pharisee's name is Simon. Simon. And I think one of the things this shows that Jesus going to Simon's house for this banquet is that Jesus at this point is, is not so opposed to the Pharisees that he's not willing to engage them with the gospel. He knows that yes, they are closed off, but, but maybe this one might be open. Maybe there might be some of God's chosen amongst these Pharisees. And so he goes with an intent, I, I believe, to, to, to show them his gospel, Christ, his own righteousness, and their need of salvation. And so they may have been opposed to him, to Jesus' ministry, but Jesus wants to win these people too. Now as we come to this banquet, there are many cultural things that are going on here that we as Westerners can easily miss. And so I want to point these out for us as we go through it because there's an interchange going on here that is, that is more than just a casual dining environment. 
things that were expected at these sorts of events that we might not necessarily recognize. And, and we can kind of pick up on them as we read through it. But it was expected for someone to host to treat their guests extremely well. Hospitality was and still is in the Middle East a, a very highly valued uh, practice. And so that the, the person taking in someone into their home would, would value their guests very highly. They would do anything to make sure those guests were treated well. This is common practice from the, the wealthy down to the, the lowliest. Those who had virtually nothing to give, they would go out and get the best that they have to offer to their guests on that day because they cared for their guests. In addition to that, that when someone, when a guest entered their home, there were protocols. Particularly, the host would greet their guests with a kiss on the cheek. Then, after they were seated, there was water and olive oil would be brought for the washing of hands and the feet. Olive oil was the, essentially the soap of the first century. And even today, olive oil is widely used across the Middle East for, for these daily practices, daily tasks. And then after they were washed up, they would say grace for the meal. But in this case, again, as we pick up the details to this text, Jesus walks into this banquet, and Simon, the Pharisee, does not offer any of these courtesies to Jesus. Jesus walks in, there's a customary kiss and leading to the seat and offering water and olive oil, and yet Jesus walks in and is forced to go to a seat all by himself with nothing. This omission would have instantly been picked up by everybody in the room. Instantly, they would have known that this guest was just snubbed in one of the greatest ways, insulted. And it's clear that Simon intentionally did so. Again, you're, what do you normally do when you welcome someone in your house? Hey, good to see you. Welcome. You stick out your hand and you welcome them into your home, grab their coats and, and try to help them to get settled. I mean, you do that without even thinking. It's just customary for how you welcome someone into your home. So this is how they would have naturally welcomed somebody in. So to not do it would have taken a force of the will to intentionally send a message. And it was loud and clear that even though Jesus was invited to this meal, he was not a respected guest. So there's ice in the air. Everyone feels the insult going to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't get up and walk out in a huff. He isn't take his insults out with him, but he continues. He bears the insults, and he continues on to be there for the purpose that he has come. Now, it says that throughout this passage that they're reclining at table. You'll notice that, verse 36. He, he uh, goes into the Pharisee's house, and he reclines at table. We don't typically recline, lay down at the table, but in Ancient society, the particularly borrowed from the Romans, was a, a three-sided table uh, setup called the triclinium in which you'd have basically these big elevated couches that uh, were on three sides of a table and you'd have people lay upon those couches facing the middle. And so they'd lay on their left elbow and they'd be able to reach for food with their right and be able to eat with their feet extending out away from the table. 
And so the servants then would be able to walk into the one side, that the, you know, the fourth side that's not covered by one of those couches, and be able to walk in and serve the food and pick up the empty platters and whatnot. And so then the guests would be able to, be able to enjoy the food. So that's how they reclined at these banquets and why it mentions reclining at table. So we have Jesus entering this house of the Pharisee. There's instant insult that is given to him. He sits down. Everyone knows that this man has just been snubbed by the host. But verse 37 gives us another twist. It says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Luke it's in the text here, verse 37, he says, and behold, behold in the text is a, meant to grab your attention. Remember, most of these were given orally, and so as, as a story is being told, they need to put in some exclamation point to make people sit up and recognize what was happening. And so behold was kind of that, that, that spark to make sure to pay attention. A twist is happening. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. This woman was known to be a flagrant Sinner, she was known in the city or the town. And this is not, when they say that she's a sinner, this is not just saying that she's a general run-of-the-mill sinner. This is speaking of someone who is involved in professional sin, namely prostitution. She was not just a lady who was going around and, and spreading gossip and therefore was named a sinner. She was engaged in blatant immorality, and the people of the town knew it. And so what does this lady do? She hears that Jesus is going to be going to this banquet, and so she prepares to go see him. Now, in that time, it was common for guests uh, or uninvited guests to simply walk in on these banquets. So we read here where this woman walks in and you go, oh, she's uninvited. But it was common for, for people who knew of, of high-ranking people in a city to have a banquet, for them to walk in and stand along the sides and listen to the conversation. And so it was kind of a public event. And so therefore, for uh, her to be there was not all that strange, although her occupation made it strange for the nature of the home that she was in, a Pharisee's home that greatly criticized and judged her. But it seems, but this woman hears that Jesus is going to be at this banquet and she is intent on going. Why does she want to go to this banquet? Well, I think we need to piece together the details of this account, right? This account references her forgiveness, how she has been forgiven of her sins. And I think if we recognize what's going on here is that, is that this woman, who we do not know her name, has been lost to history, but she seems to have heard Jesus sometime before. There seems to be a time that she heard Jesus preach. Obviously, Jesus was traveling around Galilee, giving his messages, and so there were plenty of opportunities for people to be able to hear uh, his message and the good news that he offered. Jesus preached that, that God loves sinners and that people, even like her, could find forgiveness. And that message captivated her. It drew her in, and she realized that she needed that forgiveness. And I believe that she comes and enters this scene as a changed woman. She's not come seeking forgiveness. I believe she's already believed in her heart that she's received that forgiveness because she's, she's responded to the message of Jesus. 
even by her action here. She's not bringing this alabaster jar in order to earn the forgiveness or try to, to try to ask Jesus for forgiveness. She's coming because she knows, based upon his good news, that she's already forgiven. And she is overwhelmed with gratitude and love to this man who is, has preached this news. Alabaster was a, is a soft stone that can be easily carved and therefore was used throughout the ancient world for all sorts of decorative purposes. Used for wall art, uh, as well as statues and, uh, and also to make small uh, uh, containers, particularly that would hold costly perfumes. Perfumes that came from all over the world, even as far as India, uh, were uh, flowers that were, that were picked in the Himalayas were brought and created uh, these special perfumes and therefore were extremely expensive. The alabaster, though, was porous, and so it, it would slowly uh, emanate the, the, the fragrance out through that bottle and therefore would, would be a, a, a reminder. And so she comes bringing this ointment or perfume to Jesus. It seems that her desire is simply to show gratitude. She realizes that, that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners and that she fits that bill, that she has had a life of sin, but Jesus offers forgiveness to her and she is overwhelmed. She's overwhelmed that she could be accepted, that she could receive this forgiveness. And so she gets this costly perfume and she brings it to anoint Jesus to show her love and affection to him. Now, I believe that this woman was here from the beginning of the evening. I believe that, that she saw everything that took place. She saw what Simon did, how Simon insulted Jesus. Because Jesus says that from the time that he entered, uh, she has not ceased to, uh, verse 45, has not ceased to kiss my feet. This woman was here from the beginning. So she's there, she sees Simon insulting Jesus, and I believe she's sitting against the wall. Again, she's a guest, there's this banquet going on, she's waiting for Jesus to come in, and as soon as Jesus comes in, and he then goes to sit down, he, she sees what gets played out. That these great righteous men, the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders who claim to be representing God to the people, have insulted and shown the greatest disgrace to Jesus. And I believe that her heart is broken. She comes with a full heart of gratitude and she sees him, Jesus treated with such contempt and her heart breaks that this man that she loves so much that has given her life and forgiveness is now being so insulted. And so she moves forward. She steps out of the shadows. She steps out of, away from the wall and moves toward Jesus as he sits at this table, or le, le, reclines. And it says that she stands behind Jesus' feet, verse 38. Now, again, you can understand this table set up where they're reclining on their left shoulder and their feet are sticking out behind them. You can understand why when she would walk up, she'd walk up and, and stand behind his feet as he lays at table in front of him, in front of her. And you can just imagine the room goes silent at this point. Not only is this well-known sinner here in this room, but she's now approaching the guests. She's now breaking protocol and engaging those who are there. And on top of that, she's weeping. 
She's weeping. We don't know how loud, what kind of commotion, but it's got to have been noticeable by all of those that were there. Verse 38 says she stood behind his feet weeping. This is in the present tense, meaning there was continual weeping. She just continues to sob and to sob. She can't be consoled as she weeps at the feet of Jesus. And so she's there, she's weeping, and it's beginning to wet the feet, Jesus' feet. And, but, you know, a few drops on the feet doesn't wet the feet, but in order, to, in order to wash them with her tears, she's got to be sobbing over those feet for a while as those tears continue to flow. Jesus doesn't move. He stays there and allows her to continue to, to weep and to wet his feet with her tears, it says. So there she is, all eyes on her. I have to imagine it's silent as she, she is the spectacle right now, weeping over the feet of Jesus. And, and then she realizes as she's there trying to do what Simon didn't do. She saw Simon insult Jesus by not washing his feet, and so she steps in and says, well, well I'll do that for my Savior. I'll do that for Jesus. And all she has is her tears that begin to, to wet the feet, but then she realizes that she has no towel. She can't do the customary wash the feet and then dry them with a towel. She needs something to, to dry Jesus' feet. And so she proceeds to let down her hair. In this society, and in many societies in the Middle East even today, women are required to wear their hair up. It's a very strict policy. The rabbis were clear that, that women were required to keep their hair tied up. In fact, they're not allowed to allow their hair to be let down in the presence of men other than their husbands. The reason for this, which might sound strange to us Westerners today, is that the hair flowing down was considered a sexual display and thus was forbidden outside of marriage. It was considered to be sensual to have the hair down. And so in that culture, we're used to seeing women everywhere with hair tied up and to know that that's a private thing done in the privacy of a home or bedroom and then there in this house of Simon she goes and loosens her hair and allows it to fall open. Again, she's known as the town prostitute. She's known as the scandalous woman. And here she makes a, what looks like, or could be accused of, a sensual move as she lets down her hair before Jesus. But doesn't, she doesn't stop there. She dries his feet and then it says, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. She goes all the way. She weeps, washes them, dries them with her hair, and then she kisses his feet and then anoints them with this most likely expensive ointment. She has now completed her love and her gratitude to Jesus. She has poured out herself at great cost to herself. The boldness required to step forward in that room against all social convention, against the shame that she wore as her occupation had been with her, and to step forward and to, and to make that move was at great cost to her own reputation even more. 
and yet the cost that she had in bringing that alabaster flask, she showed the level of her love to Jesus. But we see that the host wasn't amazed. The host was scandalized. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon begins to have this private thought. Who does this guy, this guy doesn't know anything. He thinks he's a prophet. The people claim he's a prophet. But if he actually was a prophet, if he truly represented God, he would not allow this woman to do this sort of scandalous thing such as touching him. Like touching, biblically, often can refer to sexual contact. And so he's insinuating here in his private thoughts that not just that she actually just physically touched him with her hands, but that she's making advances on him. And so he goes, this man's not sent by God. This isn't man's true represent, God's true representative because he would have known who this woman is and he's absolutely appalled. You see, in Simon's eyes, this woman is still a sinner. There's almost nothing this woman can do to repent of her sin. It doesn't matter what kind of gifts she could offer to Jesus. She is forever labeled this sinner. And Simon has no category for her repenting. And yet that's exactly what she's doing here. This is signs of her repentance that she is turning from her life of sin and rejection of God's law and turning to acknowledge God's son. And so Jesus preached a different message than the, than the, than the rabbis. The rabbis didn't allow for these sorts of sinners to have redemption, and yet Jesus taught that God loves sinners. He was a friend, he was known as a friend of sinners like her. In fact, when asked earlier in Luke chapter 5 why he associates with such vile people, he replied this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, I've come for people like this. I've come to save them and call them to repentance. And so I believe there's a principle here for us that just as this woman's repentance and love for Jesus led her to step out boldly and in costly action for, to Jesus. So the principle for us is that love for Jesus always results in action. Love for Jesus always results for a, in action. Love is a verb, it's not just a feeling. And yet there are many that claim to love Jesus, to love the Lord, and yet their life does not show that. Jesus has made it clear in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You can't divorce the two. You can't say, I love Jesus, but I don't really want to obey him in this area. No, if we love Jesus, it's going to result in obedient action. It's going to take form of, of action in our lives. Again, this is not, love for Christ is not just an emotional feeling that we, we feel and we go, oh, that's nice, and then we move on and live however we want. If we love Jesus, we follow him. If we love Jesus, we obey him because that's our heart's desire. We want to do what he says. Now, as this woman showed, I believe there's some freedom in how we express our love to Jesus. Even within the church today, people can love Christ in, in different ways with some variety, but we all seek to follow his word. 
We all seek to obey the commands found in the Bible. Because, get this, it's impossible to say that you love Jesus while willingly rejecting what he said. By, while actively disobeying him. Get this, willful, unrepentant, persistent disobedience shows a heart that loves oneself rather than the Savior. Willful, unrepentant, persistent disobedience shows a heart that loves oneself rather than the Savior. Now, we all sin, friends. We all stumble in many ways. But we go to Christ and we repent of that sin and we find forgiveness at the cross. But it's willful, unrepentant sin that shows a heart that is not truly loving Jesus. Because if we love him, it will result in action as we obey Christ, as this woman exemplified here. So the first thing we see aspect of her example is that her repentance drove her to honor Christ boldly. The second aspect of her example is that her forgiveness drove her to love Christ deeply. Her forgiveness drove her to love Christ deeply. And we see this in verses 40 through 47. Now in these next set of verses, Jesus speaks up and he explains what this woman has done and in the process, he shames Simon. Look at verse 40. It says, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. By saying, I have something to say to you, Jesus was making it clear, I'm about to tell you something uncomfortable, Simon. I'm about to tell you something controversial. I'm about to confront you. And Simon says, I'm game. Say it, teacher. I, I imagine he said it with a little bit of a smirk. He thinks he's in the morally superior position. He's a representative of God's law. He's a Pharisee. He's the righteous one in this room. Obviously, Jesus isn't. He's, inter he's interacting with this sinful woman. That woman, she's a great sinner. So sure, Jesus, whatever you got to say, I know I'm in a better morally righteous position, so go ahead. But then Jesus launches into a parable, a short parable, but a pointed parable. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarius was a day's wages for a common laborer. So therefore, the small debt mentioned here, the 50 denarii, is about uh, two months' wages. Two months. But the 500 denarii is about two years, two years wages. Imagine being behind two years, the amount of two years of your, of your salary is essentially what he's describing here. Now clearly there's a difference between these two debts, but there's a similarity that, that brings these two debtors together. One is that they both owed to the same lender, and two, neither of them could pay. Neither of them could pay their debts. But that's when Jesus gives the punchline. Verse 42, look at it. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. He canceled the debt of both. This word for canceling includes the idea of graciously uh, forgiving or showing grace. And that's why some translations say that this moneylender graciously forgave the debts. Of course, having creditors is common, but for a, a moneylender to just nix the debt altogether with no strings attached, was unheard of and is unprofitable. And yet that's exactly the point 
of this parable. But get this, Jesus brings this parable home directly to Simon. He's got Simon in his sights, and he pins it on him with a question. He says, now which of them will love him more? Which of them will love him more? Simon brought Jesus into his home to test him and potentially trap him. Can we get Jesus to kind of slip up here? And then we'll really see his true colors and show that we're the superior ones. And up to this point, he thinks he's got him. He thinks he's got Jesus. But here Jesus gets him. Simon, who, which one would love more? Simon is forced to answer. Notice the text says in verse 43 that he says, I suppose. I suppose. It's like he reluctantly answers. Well, I, I, I suppose the, the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. He has to answer because it's so clear. And Jesus, notice, affirms that. You have judged rightly. I assume Simon kind of turned to his buddies and go, oh, you know, kind of answer right. You can expect that from me. I, I, I answer rightly. But then Jesus does something unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. He begins to shame the host. Again, you just think of it even in our own day. You invite a family over for dinner, maybe it's a family from the church you're getting to know, and they stand up and just begin to lay into you, criticizing you and insulting you for all the things that you've done wrong. You're going, whoa, this is unheard of. Uh, this is not normal and really kind of not acceptable. Like maybe privately or some other time you can come back to me and talk about the things that I've done wrong, but you're not just gonna uh, insult me in front of all of my guests. And yet this is what Jesus does. He is, he is, he is a, a brave uh, representative of God. He is the God-man who steps into the situation not fearing any man, he doesn't care what other people think. He fears his father. He fears the Lord. And he steps in to do the right thing. And that means to shame the, the powerful men that are right in front of him. He says, notice verse 44. He says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. You can imagine Simon's behind him. And he's looking at the woman. He says, do you see this woman? And she, he has to acknowledge, yes, I see this woman. Of course, we see here. We've all been watching her weeping over your feet. But he's saying, do you really see her? Are you truly assessing her accurately? And so he then shows how this woman is morally superior to Simon. He says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. All the courtesies that Simon should have shown Jesus, this former prostitute has done for Jesus. She filled in where he failed. And by highlighting these actions, Jesus is not only commending the woman for her faithfulness, but he is showing that the significant question is what people do with Jesus. In other words, Simon, it doesn't matter how much you follow the law. It doesn't matter how righteous you think you are. The main question is what are you doing with me? I'm the center of this here. He's essentially saying, Simon, you think that the crucial question about moral status here tonight is who is the greater law keeper? But I tell you, the person who treats me with greater honor is the one who is the morally superior person. And so that leads Jesus to make a significant declaration in verse 47. 
He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. In this statement, Jesus applies the parable he told. He applies it to this woman and to Simon. This woman is obviously the one with the greater debt. In the eyes of Simon, who has the most, the biggest list of sins? If both Simon and this prostitute were to stand before a judge and they were to roll out all their offenses according to the law of God, whose list would be longer? It would be the woman's. She's done, had the most blatant sin according to the law. Simon has tried to live an, an exemplary law-keeping life. And so technically, Simon's list of technical sins was relatively short, his debt being smaller. But they shared in a similar problem. They shared in a similar problem neither one could pay. Simon, even though he might have seen more righteous, he couldn't pay his debt, and neither could the woman. And so carrying the illustration further, Jesus is, was willing to forgive both people. But he makes it clear that the one, who's the one that really appreciates this forgiveness? Who's the one that really cares that their sins have been washed clean? It's the one who's been forgiven much. Therefore, the greater the debt, the greater the love. The greater the debt, the greater the appreciation. Jesus says that this woman's sins, even though they are many, are forgiven. The verb for forgiven here in the Greek text is important in the tense that it's given because it describes not just a one-time past action that, oh, they were forgiven at that one time, but it's, it's, it's a, a tense that describes that it was a past action with present results, which really describes a new state, a new condition, a new place that this woman is in. She is now in the realm and the sphere of forgiveness. She's been forgiven, and she just forever stays in that realm of forgiveness. Jesus is saying that she has moved into this realm of forgiveness for her sins. And so it's an action that doesn't need to be repeated. It's a continual state and condition that this woman is in. It's because of this forgiveness. It's because she's been forgiven so extensively that she loves so passionately. It's because she's been forgiven so extensively that she loves so passionately. Now here in verse 47, it may look like she is forgiven because she loves. Notice it says, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. It could sound like because she loved much. Because she loved so much, okay, I'll forgive her. But that translation and that understanding is not only contrary to the context of the passage, but it's really contrary to the doctrine of the whole Bible, which is a works-based salvation. That if we give enough love to Jesus, then we'll get forgiven. But the message of salvation, the message of the gospel, is flipped. That it's because we are forgiven and saved that then we are able to love as much as we do. And so other translations Try to capture that. For example, the Christian Standard Bible translates it. It says, therefore I tell you, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. That's why. Therefore, she loved much. Because of her forgiveness, therefore, she loves the way that she does. And so here's the principle for us. Forgiveness drives affection. Forgiveness drives affection. But more specifically, I believe it is our sense of the greatness of the forgiveness we receive from Christ that drives our love for Christ. 
The greater our sense of the debt that we owe to God, the greater our love will be to our Savior. If we think that our sins haven't been that great and we're not that bad of a sinner, then our love will just be little. But if we recognize that our, our, the list of our sins is infinite and we could never pay them back, then we realize how much we've been forgiven, how much has been washed clean, and therefore we can love Christ for all that he's forgiven us for. I believe it's our own misunderstanding of our sin that keeps us from loving Christ more. It's because we love to dwell on our self-righteousness. We think that we're better people than we are. We compare ourselves to people around us and think, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not bad like them and like them. And so we downplay our sin. But by downplaying our sin, friends, we, we steal from ourselves the opportunity to recognize all that has been forgiven and therefore to recognize all, all the affection that we can offer to Christ. We grow in our love for Jesus by seeing how great our debt truly is. Because the Bible is clear that every single person is a sinner and is in debt before God. Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And, and the, the answer to that rhetorical question is no one. Not you and not me. If he's counting everything on our lists, nobody could stand. We are all in debt to God. And this record of debt not only includes all the bad things that we've done, but it's all the good things that we haven't done. It's the things that we've gone out and, and intentionally committed and the things that we've neglected. Do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? No, we often neglect that. There's there's sins of both commission and omission, and they stack against us. There's sins we commit we don't even know about. And so we must look to Christ. We must realize that we are just as vile as the greatest sinner, that we are deserving of hell just like the greatest sinner. But we can't stop there just looking at our sin. We've got to then look to Christ. And we've got to see that it's through him that our sins are forgiven. Through him, it is all changed and turned. Because Jesus is able to forgive you and me because he took the penalty for our sins, friends. He went to the cross on our behalf and the wrath of God came upon him so that you and I don't have to pay for our sins. He is our substitute. He is able to forgive because he paid the debt in full. He stamps it on our record of sins and says paid in full. That is why we love him so much. It's because he paid it all, right? There's nothing left. There's no condemnation now I dread as the hymn writer wrote from Romans 8 verse 1 because Jesus paid it all. And we rejoice in that. We don't turn away and go, oh, great, thanks, Jesus. We move on with our life. We rest and realize the greatness of our debt that has been forgiven to us. Some of us here today take our sin too lightly, and therefore, our love for Christ doesn't barely register on the scale because we don't look close enough at how vile and wicked our hearts are and how much we've been forgiven. And so we need to look at that afresh 
But we can't just stay looking at our sins. Some of us here are, are, are naturally introspective and you study your, your, your flesh and you study all of your sin and you go, woe is me, I'm so horrible, I'm so wicked, I'm such a sinner. And that's where you stop. But we're never gonna swell in love for Christ if we stay focused on our sin. We gotta see our sin and, and see that stamp over every one of those paid in full by the blood of Jesus. And friends, as we see that payment, as we see Jesus paying for it and forgiving it and recognizing that our whole record of debt has been done away with, then our love for Christ will grow. And we can say, thank you, Jesus, for paying for that sin. And oh yeah, I remember now more of my teenage years. Thank you for paying for all of those sins too. And right, you just start unfolding all of our lives and realize we've got a lot that Jesus has forgiven us for and he's forgiven us and covered even future sins that we commit. We love because he first loved us, and therefore our hearts rejoice in this. Well, it's finally, in the last couple minutes we have, just look briefly at the last couple verses. The third aspect of this woman's example is that her love drove Christ to assure her definitively. Christ assured her definitively. Now, up to this point, Jesus has not actually spoken to the woman. This woman is at his feet. He's talked to Simon, but he hasn't spoken to this woman. And so think of the power, the power of these words, verse 48. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Just the verse prior, he said to Simon, this woman's sins are forgiven. A third person hearing that her sins are forgiven. But here Jesus personally turns it and gives her personal assurance of her forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven. What a sweet word for her to look into the face of Christ and to hear him say those words that indeed all of her sins, everything she's ever done is wiped away and it's forgiven. She hears it directly from the, from the word and mouth of the Savior. And even if the community, even if she leaves that night and goes out into the community and even if these religious leaders continue to look down upon her and everyone else rejects her, she knows that Jesus has accepted her and Jesus has given her the word of forgiveness. On top of that, he says in verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman did not do anything to earn her salvation. She simply believed and trusted in Jesus. It was her faith that saved her faith in Christ, and therefore she could go in peace. And she is now in a state of salvation, not needing to be saved again. She belongs to Christ. And so this is the wonderful truth for us today, for us to think on as we see the nature of forgiveness and love for Jesus in this passage, friends, is that we receive assurance of our salvation from the word of God because Jesus has forgiven us. There are promises that are in the Bible that we cling to and we hold on to and that's where our assurance is found. Our assurance is not found in how we feel about our sins. Our assurance is not found in ourselves. It's found in Jesus. And we know that we're saved because the Bible has promised that all who come to him, Jesus says, I will never cast out. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We cling to that word of God. We cling to the word that if we believe on the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. Friends, we hold to the word of Jesus just like the woman did so many years ago. That is where our assurance is found and it is a definitive assurance. 
No sin, no evil force, not even death can separate us from that love of Christ. Amen? It is, we are forever in the state of forgiveness and salvation. No one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. And so, if you're believing in Christ today, you can go home in peace with God. You've been justified by faith and therefore you have an eternal relationship at peace with your creator because Jesus paid the penalty for you. But let me say, if you are here, you're listening this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, you know deep down that you're a sinner, that you're, you've been living in unrepentant sin, clinging to the things that you want to do, clinging to your own autonomy, that you want to live how you want to, li- want to live. That is a, is, a, is a path that ends in destruction, Jesus makes clear. And so the only path for you as a sinner is to go to Jesus and to find your sins paid for at the cross, to realize that he rose again from his death to give new life to all who would trust in him. You can go home a forgiven sinner today. All you need to do is right where you are is to trust and to believe in Christ, to cry out to him in the privacy of your heart and say, Jesus, forgive me. I've sinned against you. My life has stacked up sin to the heavens. Forgive me for my sin and my rebellion. Thank you for paying for them at the cross. And friends, you can hear the words of Jesus today. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I pray you would not leave today without making sure that you are at peace with God. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word and this story. The story of forgiveness. That there is an answer. That there is a solution to our problem. Father, every one of us has a debt that we could not pay. Every one of us could not pay you for all of the sins that we deserve. And so we needed someone to pay it for us. We thank you that Jesus has paid it all. I pray, oh Father, that you would help us and our love to grow and to swell as we recognize all that you have done for us. More love to thee, O Christ. We want more love to flow from our hearts to you. May your spirit make that a reality. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, go in peace, beloved. You are dismissed.